Well, thank you very much, and good morning. Whenever I am introduced as a seminary professor, I think I can almost hear the groans. Oh, no. This is going to be dreadfully boring, and this master mortician can do nothing but complicate the problem. And if that's your sentiment, perhaps you can identify with a public school teacher who was home recovering from surgery and who received a note from her class which said, your fourth grade class wishes you a speedy recovery by a vote of 15 to 14. <laughs> Fortunately for me, you were not given a vote. And I was invited to come to the Staley Lectureship and deeply appreciate the opportunity of ministering here at the Master's College. We thank God upon every remembrance of you. Peter Marshall, in his characteristically trenchant manner, describes 20th century Christians in these words. They are, he said, like deep-sea divers, encased in suits designed for many fathoms deep, marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. When one reads the pages of the New Testament and relates what he reads to the contemporary church, he's compelled to conclude that the relationship is more frequently one of contrast rather than one of comparison. But why? Why the tremendous disparity between the church of 91 and the church of 1991. We're related to the same person. We have available the same power. And we are called essentially to the same purpose. But that's where we've been fogged. You see, the early church never was fogged in terms of the ultimate question, why are we here instead of in heaven? Yet wherever I go, across America or around the world, the screaming need is for leadership. Leaders are fast becoming an endangered species. Paul reminds his protege in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, to aspire to leadership is an honorable ambition. The wise man in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 14 says, where there is no leader, the people fall. People today are searching everywhere for leadership but they are not finding it. It's like looking for the lost cord. Time magazine, in a cover story featured some time ago, asked the question, who's in charge? And answered its own question by saying, the nation calls for leadership, and there is no one at home. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30, the prophet informs us that God searched for a man among them to
to build up the wall, to stand in the gap. But he found none. Men and women, we are confronted today with the leadership cancer. And the disease is terminal. The only hope is early detection and early cure. We have entitled this lectureship Leadership for the year 2000. And this morning I would like to underscore for you the need for leaders. There are three reasons which conspire to build a convincing case that leadership is not an option, it's an essential. It's not something nice, it's something absolutely necessary. First of all, I want to remind you our society needs leaders. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. What a perceptive parable of our society. We are living in a generation in which everything nailed down is coming loose, in which the things that people said could not happen are happening. And thoughtful, though unregenerate individuals are asking, where is the glue to reassemble the disintegrating and disarrayed parts? Eugene O'Neill makes one of his characters say it so graphically. You cannot build a marble temple out of a mixture of mud and manure. But we continue to try. Man is almost insanely committed to the proposition that he has the answers to his problems. He's forever building his little sandcastles only to discover the inundating tides of reality, washing them out to sea. And then he seeks someone to blame. I saw an intriguing piece of graffiti in Philadelphia some time ago, scratched across the wall, were these words. Humpty Dumpty was pushed. <laughs> Ours is the most critical time in the world's history. There is a growing recognition that our problems are beyond us, that our resources are inadequate, that our governments are floundering. We're long on analysis, but short on answers. Derek Bach, president of Harvard University, commenting on our society, said there's very obvious dearth of people who seem able to supply convincing answers or even to point to directions toward solutions. Former French President Giscard d'Estaing said it, the world is unhappy because it doesn't know where it's going and because it senses if it knew, it would discover that it was heading for disaster. U.S. News and World Report devoted an entire issue to the leadership crisis and said, in our opinion, based on hundreds of thousands of hours of research, that a basic cause of our society's exploding problems is personal and organizational irresponsibility. 
Yet how does one educate people to be moral, ethical, responsible? The greatest crisis in America today, young people, is a crisis of leadership. And the greatest crisis of leadership is a crisis of character. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we are introduced to the fact that from God's perspective, we need a different kind of leadership, a different breed, men and women of courage, of conviction, of character. The children of Israel said, let's look for the person head and shoulders above the crowd. And when Samuel saw Eliab, he immediately concluded erroneously, that's our man. God said, do not look at his appearance or at his height, because I have rejected him. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. You see, there is a perspective that's pervaded our society. We look for leaders, someone who looks good without being good. We're tempted to buy leadership by the pound instead of by the person. God's method has always been to take a clean man, a clean woman, drop them in the midst of a corrupt society to demonstrate the power of his grace. And yet I'm afraid our young people today are often totally unaware of the challenge confronting them. John Gardner, in his excellent book entitled On Leadership, says our young people are being born into a society that is huge, impersonal, and intricately organized. Far from calling them to leadership, it appears totally indifferent. It does not seem to need them at all. Far from creating the confidence that young leaders require, it's apt to create puzzlement and a sense of powerlessness. It's very hard for young people today to believe that any action on their part will affect the vast processes of their society. But I'm here to tell you that the future of the church essentially rests in your hands. Oh, I'm well aware that the world is saying to you, why bother? Why get involved in all of that messy commitment? It's plenty to enjoy without involving yourself in all of that. The past is graveyard. Ignore it. The future is Holocaust. Avoid it. There's no payoff for discipleship. There's no destination for pilgrimage. Get God the quick way. By instant charisma. My challenge to you young men and women today is that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You are living in a society that is broken at the wheel and that is desperately looking for some models. One of the most encouraging signs that I am seeing as I travel back and forth across America is the increasing core of Christian young men and women who are willing to break with the herd, who are willing to go for broke, 
who are willing to invest their lives without a string attached to make an impact for the Savior. But not only does our society need leaders, our families need leaders. One of the alarming trends in America today, transparent to any thinking Christian, is the disappearance of the distinctively Christian home. I'm talking about a home, not simply where Christ resides, but where Christ rules, where Christian truth filters down and permeates into every area of that home life. And yet, realistically, I'm compelled to tell you that even Christian marriages are exploding today like firecrackers on the 4th of July. Families are unraveling like a cheap sweater. Working mothers, absent passive fathers, latchkey children are the hallmarks of our age. And I suspect if I went up and down the rows in this gym today, I would talk to many of you like myself who came from a dysfunctional family. The young lady at the seminary whom I have come to love deeply, her father is a drug dealer in, in the penitentiary, will be there the rest of his life. His mother is, her mother is a prostitute. There are five children in the family. She's the only one who has come to faith. He told me some time ago, Prof, I can never remember a time in my life when I was not sexually abused by my father, by my brother, by my uncles. She's come to faith. She's committed herself to serve vocationally, full-time, for the Savior. But imagine the hangover of that kind of a lifestyle. She came out to my home some time ago. She said to my wife, Jean, Jean, I'll do anything for you. I'll mow your lawn. I'll clean your home. I'll do anything. I just want to be around a Christian woman to find out what does a Christian woman look like. How do you flesh out the truth that I'm learning at the seminary in my daily experience? May I remind you, men and women, of an historical fact, and this fact ought to stab you awake this morning if you're a thinking person. No society has ever survived the disintegration of its home life. You see, once the home goes, the rest go. It's just a question of time. Does it not fascinate you that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 2, where you have the qualifications for leadership, so many of those qualifications relate to the family? In fact, he says, if you are looking for leaders in the church, don't look in his public realm. Look in the private realm. If he can't manage his own family, then don't put him in a place of leadership in the family of God. If he cannot function in a limited sphere, don't enlarge it. 
I read a book some time ago. I suspect many of you would not have read it because of its title, Passive Men, Wild Women. By Pierre Mornell, an eminent psychologist here on the West Coast, who said, One of, over the last few years, I've seen in my office an increasing number of couples who share a common denominator. Listen to this. The marriage is active, articulate, energetic, and usually successful in his work. But he is inactive, inarticulate, lethargic, and withdrawn at home. And this passivity drives his wife crazy. And in face of his retreat, she goes wild. Just take a gut check for a few moments concerning your own family. You come from a family in which your father is active, articulate, involved, particularly in the spiritual realm? Or is it, if it were not for mom, I'd have never made it? See, that's a symptom that tells you we are in deep trouble. The great need today, and my great prayer for many of you, is that God will bring together young men and young women, both of whom have an equal commitment to their marriage, to their family, to their leadership role in their society. And their family simply becomes a wedge in the midst of the day in which they live. Let me suggest, just for your thinking, an answer to the question, what is the contribution of the home to leadership? You see, that's what disturbs me. Having taught in an institution, in a graduate institution for 40 years, is just long enough to get an education. And the interesting thing is, I am being bent out of shape. I got guys, I got gals sitting across my desk who've got commitment wall to wall but they don't have basic habit patterns. They don't have basic characteristics which are essential to leadership because, my friends, those characteristics are very largely developed in someone's home. Things like character. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is all about. He says, these words shall be upon your heart, and then you shall teach them to your children. My friend, you can't impart what you do not possess. If you're not a carrier, you can't infect anyone. And it's in the home that the child comes to realize this is not a nice set of words and ideas. This is a revolutionary lifestyle. It's in the home that your self-concept is developed. That little picture that each of us carries around in our mind. You either like yourself or you hate yourself. And my friend, if you hate yourself, it's very difficult to love other people. The attitudes that you have toward life, you either enjoy it or you endure it. Your attitudes toward people, they either bother you or they challenge you. Your attitude toward work, 
It's either a drag or a delight. You either get up in the morning and sing, when morning gilds the skies, my heart awakening cry. Oh, no, not another day. <laughs> we'll never forget a pagan father with whom I lived after my family split up. And my father used to wake up in the morning during the Depression days, and I will never forget hearing him say, Hey, son, another day in which to work! That makes an indelible impression. You see, he gave to me a zest for living, the gift of industry. I was doing some interesting research and discovered a very remote tribe in the South Sea Islands that has no way of condemning someone, telling them to go to. They've got a better way. They say, may you be banished to idleness the rest of your life. It's in your home that you get your values so that you ultimately come out to use things and love people, not love things and use people. The wealthiest man I've ever known was an individual I had the privilege of having lunch with some time ago at Word of Life in Scroon Lake, New York. I said to him, Alan, how in the world did you ever come out of such wealth with such incredible passion for people? instead of things. He said, it's very easy to explain. It's the product of my parents. In the midst of all of our wealth, my parents taught me that everything we owned was either a tool or it was an idol. Either a tool to be used by God or an idol to detract us from service. In your home, you pick up your habit patterns. If you stop and reflect for a few moments this morning, you'll be compelled to conclude that every major asset you have this morning is very largely the product of your home. I told you I was reared by my father and my grandparents. My father was a military man, very, very patriotic. He laid down stripes. I saw stars. And I can never remember once turning around saying, boy, Dad, thanks a lot for that fresh evidence of your love. <laughs> you know, I rise up and call him blessed every day I live. My pagan father did a better job preparing me for the ministry than 90% of the Christian parents I am exposed to. And I'll guarantee you, he never intended to prepare me for the ministry. But he taught me discipline. I sat across the desk just the other day from a kid who has 160 IQ, which for your information is slightly above average. <laughs> Graduate of an Ivy League school. Major professor wrote on his application form, I'm sorry that this kid is going into the ministry. In the course, I read this application. He said, in 38 years teaching in this institution, 32 of them as chairman of the department, I've never seen anybody in his league, and I'm sorry he's going to waste his life in the ministry. 
And it's that student often sitting across from my desk who says to me, Prof, I'd give my right arm if I had your discipline. And I ask, where did I get it? See, I got it, young people, from an unsaved father who communicated nothing to me spiritually for one obvious reason. He had nothing to communicate. But he was a disciplined human being. And what an asset. Probably one of the greatest assets God has ever given me. And it came out of my home. Men and women, the breakdown, the erosion of leadership is ultimately a breakdown of the family. When I was a kid, I loved to go to missionary conferences. I don't remember a whole lot of what they said, but I've never forgotten one statement that kept coming over and over again. You know, I'd love to go as a kid, sit up on the front, look at the snake skins and the pith helmets and all of the rest of these exciting things. But over and over again, almost without any collusion, I kept hearing that statement. The greatest impact on a pagan society is the distinctively Christian marriage and family. And you need to understand that's your greatest tool in terms of your future. See, if a person has a good marriage today, you're fast becoming a phenomenon. My wife and I were riding on an American Airlines plane some time ago. We were mooning as we are wont to do. Flight attendant came by and she said, Hey, just married? I said, Not exactly. We've been married for 86 years. 86 years. So that's right, I've been married to her for 43. She's been married to me for 43. <laughs> she said, do you mean to tell me to the same woman? That's her, baby. She got on a public address system and sang congratulations to us. Here's another one of these freakos, you know. Woo, what a pervert. That's what the prophet was talking about when he said there will come a day when they will call righteousness sin and sin righteousness. They can't tell the difference between Chanel number five and sewer gas number nine. Well, there's a third reason why we need leaders. Our society desperately needs leaders. Our families critically need leaders. And our churches need leaders. Greatest unresolved problem confronting the evangelical church today is the unemployment problem. Too many drones in the divine hive. Tell my students at the seminary there are only two groups of people in your church, the pillars that support it and the caterpillars who crawl in and out week after week. <laughs> Occupy 18 inches, more or less, on a pew. Shake your hand as a pastor with something of a pious whine and say, Pastor, <laughs> that was a wonderful sermon. <laughs> we'll see you next week. My friend, they're seldom come closer to the truth. They're checking it to you. 
Now, if I understand my New Testament correctly, God gives to every believer a spiritual gift with which to function in the body, not with which to spectate in the stand. But unfortunately, in many of our churches, we are hurting badly. A recent study was taken, came up with a conclusion, 80 to 85% of the churches in America are in trouble. They have either plateaued or they are in serious decline. I've just come off four pastors' conferences with over 3,000 pastors. And I can tell you firsthand that what I'm talking about is not something I read in a book. This is something happening all across these United States. The average church in America is operated by 15 to 20 percent of its membership. And the result is, there is a tremendous misuse of talent in our churches. For example, what do we do with a new convert? Here's a guy, a gal, somebody comes to Christ under the impact of their newfound faith. They're very sincere. They want to get involved. Man, we press them into the harness. We ask them to minister when they've never been ministered to. You can't communicate out of a vacuum. And this is why the paths of Christian experience are strewn with the wreckage and debris of people who short... ...their conversion were never discipled but we're pressed into the harness. Or I think of the many Christians I run into who are in the wrong place. They've got the gift of administration and we've got them in teaching. And if the guy's got the gift of teaching, we got him in administration. When all the time, the key to leadership is finding what do you do well? What has God gifted you both naturally and supernaturally to do? What do you do most effectively? And that's a very important question, I might add, for you to ask in the process of going through the master's college. You see, there are many of our young people graduating from our Christian schools, highly qualified to be utterly useless. And the reason is they've never stopped to assess, who am I? What has God gifted me to do? Where is my passion? What do I pound the table over? What do I get excited about? What is it that's worth investing my life in? So I'm spending an increasing amount of time with older men and older women who are ending their life at the top of the pile in their field and at the bottom of life in terms of their impact. I'm talking about doctors and lawyers. I just spent some time this week between meetings with one of our leading neurosurgeons, walked in the door. His first question was, how do I make my life worth living? 
Now, by anybody's standards, who knows? Not only his training, his experience, his expertise, his standing in the medical community, they'd say, why, you're at the top of the pile, man. It doesn't come any better. I've seen it in professional sports, working with the NFL in the last 19 years, with teams all across the United States. Guys who end up at the top, who think it's the Super Bowl ring that does it. See, Dwayne Thomas had it clearer than most people gave him credit for. You remember him? Tom Landry told me, in my judgment, the greatest natural athlete in football I have ever seen in all of my life. In fact, he said, I was scared spitless as a coach that I would ruin him. He did so much instinctively better than the majority of people who are coached. And he said, I was afraid I'd ruin him. You remember he went into the silence treatment and finally broke it right before the Super Bowl when he said, if the Super Bowl is so great, how come they're going to play one next year? With most people crawling under the rug. See, business people, and by the way, even people in ministry, how's this grab you for a statement? One of the leading expositors of our generation said to me some time ago, just before his retirement, Hendricks, I've learned how to build a great church, but I've never learned how to build great people. You see, it's the result of individuals who don't stop to ask, not what do I want now, but what do I want at the end of life? When I cash in my chips, when I lie down in that six or eight foot grave, what do I really want as an epitaph? What kind of fulfillment do I care to have? See, part of our problem is that we have an erroneous idea of the church, and particularly of evangelism. We somehow feel that the real word is come. So we put signs on the front of our churches, which in effect say, here we are, you lucky sinners, welcome. And they stay away in droves. You know, I can't find a verse of scripture that commands a lost person to go to church. But man, I've got a lot of verses of scripture that command believers to penetrate a lost world. But you see, what we tend to think is, you've got to be a professional. I flew out here, and as always, I seek an opportunity to share my faith. It happened again. I get this guy involved in a conversation. Things were going great. Turned to spiritual things, and finally he said, hey, by, by, by the way, what do you do? Oh, Lord, why do you do this to me? Well, I'm in education. Oh, that fascinates me. Where do you teach? Oh, no. I said, I teach in the Dallas Theological Seminary. The what? Oh, you're a professional. <laughs> Curtain came down. See, I'm paid to be good. Most of you are good for nothing. <laughs> and the greatest witness for Jesus Christ in our community is not a professional. 
I mean in the sense of a vocational Christian worker, happens to be an ophthalmologist. You can tell looking over the crowd. A lot of you have been to that kind of a doctor. You know, I go, he says, Hendricks, read that sign on the wall. I said, where's the wall? You know, <laughs> covers one side. Well, it's changed now. He's gotten a little more sophisticated. But at one time, you would read, God has a wonderful plan for your life. guy leads people to Christ like it's going out of style. And way out in India, in the remotest place, used this illustration without using his name, figuring nobody knows Dr. Jack Cooper out here. This guy comes up after the meeting and he said, you were talking about Dr. Jack Cooper, weren't you? <laughs> so how did you know? Well, he said, I went to medical school in Dallas. And while I was there, my eyes went out. <laughs> I said, I got the picture. Yeah, he said, Dr. Jack led me to Christ, discipled me all the way through med school and my residency program. Today, for your information, this is the only licensed neurosurgeon in that great state of India with an incredible witness for Jesus Christ. And do you know why? He'll tell you. Because of a doctor in Dallas who knew why he was here instead of in heaven. I want you to listen to a portion of an editorial. It's a scorcher. Hang with it. The first century expansion of the church, when with all of the odds against it, it refused to be stamped out by the power of the Roman Empire, but instead caught the hearts and imaginations of men from slaves to those of the emperor's household, this was the result of the contagious enthusiasm of rank-and-file Christians. The ministry of the saints not of an ordained priestly class. The fastest growing churches in our day are not those with the greatest ecclesiastical organizations, the biggest overhead, the most executives, and the best trained clergy, but rather are what we call sect churches, storefront evangelistic groups where the functions of the ministry are carried on by the members of the congregation. But we need not be afraid of their competition because as they grow big enough to get better organized, they generally settle down, put more of the ministry in the hands of better trained clergymen, develop a bureaucracy, and become as respectable as the rest of us. Then God must raise up another group to challenge us to minister rather than to be ministered to. Any so-called church that cannot entrust to its members the job of communicating the faith is not really a church at all. That is a company of disciples, but is a mission field in need of an evangelist to come in and win a few converts so there will be those equipped as saints to do the work of the ministry. That editorial, men and women, appeared in the major organ of a leading denomination in America. After this editorial was written, the editor was replaced three weeks later. And every year since that editorial appeared, the denomination has lost between 10 to 40,000 people every year. Greatest crisis in America? The crisis of leadership. 
We need leaders in our society. We need leaders in our family. We need leaders in our churches. And my greatest hope for the future is sitting right in front of me. And during this week, God willing, I want to pass you a torch. And I want to throw down a challenge to you. Don't drop it. Father in heaven,